You're riding on a trolley that's beyond your control. There is only one track ahead, which you have no choice but to follow. Who may be tied to that track is, for now, obscured from view. You plunge inexorably forward and embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 59 of Embrace the Void, where it's going to take a lot more than passing some candy to make up for all the voidiness of the early aughts. Looking at you, W. <laughs> I am your host, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my candy uh, supplier, GW. How you doing, G-Dubs? It was okay. Like, yeah, he's a war criminal, but it was pretty adorable. Like, Yeah, it gets you out of one war, not two wars. <laughs> It gets you out of one genocide, not two. Yeah, we have feelings on all of this later in the show. But uh, we have a, a great interview. Uh, very meaty, I guess would be the way to put this right. <laughs> in the most suggestive way possible. So I guess we should just get on over to that. Yeah. What's Chang doing? He's getting a refill on his void. Our guest tonight, uh, one of our most requested guests actually, is... Uh, philosopher Alonzo Fife, uh, the developer of a theory of ethics that he calls desirism. Uh, Alonzo, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello to the void. <laughs> Wonderful. So um, we were uh, we we have a couple of crossover uh, follower listener fans who uh, were interested in hearing sort of a discussion on our differing and similar theories. And so we're happy to have you on finally to talk about this. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so uh, why don't you start off, I guess, maybe give us a little bit of background on where you've, uh, uh, where you studied or what got you into these particular topics? Okay, what, uh, what got me into it actually was uh, in junior high during an American history class. We were studying the Civil War and I was interested in the fact that all of these people were eager to be killing each other, and everybody thought that they were right. And that made me wonder, how do you figure out if you're right? How, how do you figure out that you're putting all your effort into the right side? And that got me into philosophy. Um, I spent my undergraduate years at uh, Montana State, have, getting two degrees, one in history and one in philosophy. I spent six years at the University of Maryland College Park. Unfortunately, when I handed in my PhD dissertation proposal, two days later, my dissertation advisor was oh, no. dead, died of the flu. Wow. Wow. And I couldn't get my, uh, my uh, PhD efforts back on track. So I spent uh, a few decades in the real world of living, doing real work and uh, still studying and working on my ethics and writing and, and sending it out. And actually, right now, I'm back in graduate school, hoping to get my PhD at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Oh, congratulations. I got my master's from uh, Fort Collins. <laughs> Those are two really wonderful schools. So I started uh, actually putting my ideas online about 15 years ago, and I'm not actually the one who came up with the name desireism. I was developing what I called desire utilitarianism, um, which is just rule utilitarianism, except replaces rules with desires. And it was a, a couple of the pe people reading my stuff who told me that it wasn't really a utilitarian theory. And I insisted that it was, and eventually they convinced me that I was wrong, that it's not. And they're the ones who actually came up with the name desirism. And I eventually adopted it. So do you mind, uh, I, I sort of represent the non-philosophical mind, uh, if you haven't listened to our show. Sure. Uh, so I'll, I'll ask a lot of uh, non-philosopher questions usually. That yeah, would be so great. Could, like, do you have an elevator pitch for like what desirism is? 
Um, the shortest of the uh, short spiels is that it's a theory that places desires at the center of moral evaluation, actually at the center of all evaluation. So there's a lot of moral theories out there that look at actions as being primary, right act, wrong act, um, or um, there are virtue theories that look at character traits. Um, desireism says that uh, desires as they are a part of a theory of action are actually the center of moral um, concern. Everything else ends up being derived from that. So you derive good and uh, or right and wrong actions, good and bad institutions, just and unjust laws, all of that um, get taken from a foundation that starts with desires. And so how, uh, uh, how do you take an objective view, right? If, if, you have two groups of people, or, or just two people, I guess, and, and they have differing desires, wouldn't that be a contradiction in what objective morality should be? I don't know. That's that's my terrible way of trying to sound smart. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a bit of a confusion there because of a couple of different definitions of objective. Uh -huh. so, when you talk about ethics, and some people talk about objective values, typically talking about is some type of mind-independent intrinsic value quality. And of course, desireism, since it bases everything on desires, doesn't go along with that. There are no mind-independent values. Um, but there's another type of objectivity, the type of objectivity you find in science, which simply says that there is a true or that there's a true and a false. You take a moral proposition and you can say, is it true or is it false? And if that is independent of anybody's belief about whether or not it's true or false, that is another type of objective value. And that's the type that desirism holds. So um, let's go back to your two people. You have two people, um, one uh, with different and conflicting desires. Let's say they both want $10. Yeah. A particular $10 bill I want that they $10. found. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, desireism doesn't say that the right thing is to is that which fulfills your own desires. Um, there is a. Uh, it is true that one person that they both want ten dollars, but desireism as a moral theory isn't concerned with that. Desireism evaluates desires and actions second. So you take. In this case, you have a conflict. Um, a potential way of, of resolving conflicts without bloodshed is to introduce another desire, such a, uh, a desire for what might be called fairness, although that, that is a bit of a question-begging term, that says if you both find the money, you split it. And with that desire, you can now have everybody get something and you end up with no conflict. Mm-hmm. So, but you're, is that, is that what your model goes with? The just straight fairness model? Um, no, it's actually it ends up being a lot more complex than that. That's how it would work out in this particular type of case. Uh -huh. But uh, here's, here's an example that I typically use to explain the basis of the theory. Let's imagine a community of people, each of which have an aversion to their own pain. They don't want to be in pain themselves. They don't care anything about anybody else's pain. I don't want my pain. You don't want your pain. That's it. Sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, second thing to introduce into this community is that each person has a reward system in their brain. And the way the reward system works is that it processes rewards and punishments and uses it to generate new desires. So, for example, in this hypothetical case, the way that it works out, if you praise people who avoid causing pain and you condemn those who cause pain, you can create a second desire in people, which is an aversion to causing pain. Um, they may start off by not causing pain because they don't want to be punished or they want to and, or avoid causing pain because they want a reward. But eventually it becomes what John Stuart Mill calls an end in itself. They simply don't like to cause pain to others. Now, each of us, you, me, 
uh, everybody in this community has a reason to praise those who avoid causing pain and to condemn those who cause pain in order to create this desire in others. Because once we create or this aversion, once we create this aversion in others, they're not going to want to do anything that causes us pain, which, of course, I'd be happy with. And you'd be happy with. So you end up with a community with two desires now. Everybody has an aversion to their own pain. And everybody learns or acquires a new aversion to causing pain to others. And are you saying, obviously you're giving a hypothetical here, but is your view roughly that the real world functions vaguely like this hypothetical? Well, I could uh, come up with a more exotic hypothetical, but I did, did design this one to match certain facts that I think most people will accept are true of human beings. So yeah, it is kind of the way we are. We are all more complicated than this, of course. Sure, um, but- This gets the basics. No, and I think psychologically I'm sympathetic to this model. Um, I think you and I overlap a fair bit on a lot of psychological stuff, including our shared lack of belief in free will. Um, that is one of the things about this theory is that there's no room for free will. <laughs> GW is very familiar yep. with that problem. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I've told people that if it turns out that scientists actually discover free will, some neuroscientist points to a study and says, aha, I found it. I'm going to have to scrap this theory and throw it out the window because I have nothing that I can say about free will. Well, I don't think you're in too much danger on that front personally, <laughs> but um I guess before I dive into the, the metaphysical potential disagreements, are you feeling, GW, like you mostly understand what's being claimed Yeah, here? yeah, I think, you know, um, I don't want to get bogged down too much in, in just educating me, but I, I think I have enough to continue from here. Um, so maybe it might help a little bit. We just did an episode on Hume uh and sort of discussing his ethical theories. And I know that you disagree with him on a fair bit of things, but I, I suspect you might also be sympathetic to the idea that your view is one kind of potentially neo-Humean view in the sense that <laughs> uh, you don't believe that there are intrinsic values and he doesn't believe that there, well, depending on how you read him, right? If you're a non-cognitivist, you don't believe that there's anything out there to uh, be perceived as intrinsically moral or not. Yeah, that's, that's right. Like I said at the beginning, I don't believe that there is any mind-independent intrinsic values, and, and neither did Hume, and I think Hume was right on that. But as far as Hume's theory, Hume actually ends up giving us three theories, and mm -hmm. I disagree with, and desirism follows real closely the third one. I mean, mm -hmm. Hume's first theory that he comes up with is straight subjectivism. If it feels wrong to you, it's wrong. If it feels right, it's right. You look to the feeling in your breast, and that will tell you if it's right or wrong. Now, Hume himself recognized that there were problems with that because there are people who um, think that something is right, um, and then they discover some relevant fact. So they think that somebody deserves to be punished. Then they discover some relevant fact that says that they're innocent. So their first feeling was based on misinformation. So Hume's uh, second theory said that, okay, you go by your sentiment. Mm -hmm. It's the sentiment that you have under four different uh, criteria. The sentiment that you would have if you had all the relevant information mm -hmm. about to the case, you had all the relevant information about human nature, that you are, you imagine yourself being free from any bias, that is nothing in the case affects you directly, and nothing in the case affects anybody that you care about. So now just, instead of just looking at your sentiment, you're looking from at your sentiment from this ideal observer position. And, and that was Hume's second theory. Hume's third theory, the one that desirism follows very closely, says you look at these sentiments that you use to evaluate these things, and you evaluate the sentiments themselves according to four criteria. Whether it is pleasing to the self, useful to the self, pleasing to others, or useful to others. And it is only um, the sentiments that pass this test that you use in evaluating the moral quality of an action. And desireism says pretty much the same thing. You take a desire 
and you evaluate it according to whether or not that is a desire which will tend to fulfill other desires. That is, indirectly or directly, fulfill the desires of the self or others. So it's pretty much the same formula with Hume's third theory of morality. Okay, that's really interesting. That's a good way to sort of parse the different potential kinds of subjective versus, uh, I would say, non-cognitivist accounts. Um, so I guess the, the question I immediately want to ask as a meta-ethicist is how, what is it that you feel justifies using that particular, those criteria as your foundation? Because it seems to me that uh, as, as someone who has sort of bit the bullet on my side on the intrinsic value thing, I think that intrinsic value is pretty much the way we have to go. Um, I, I wonder, how, it feels to me when, I, when you and I have had a lot of these discussions, and people should definitely go check out our discussions on your desirism group, uh, it feels to me that you see your view, as some non-cognitivists do, as uh, creating what is effectively an objective ethical system without smuggling in evaluative judgments the way you believe that people like I do. Uh, but it seems to me that if we continue to unearth sort of the foundations of your theory and ask why it is that we should use this criteria versus another criteria, we will ultimately find uh, some evaluative givens that you are taking for granted, much like everyone else has to. Does that make sense as a thrust of the critique that you and I have gone back and forth on a million times? Uh, sure. But... Okay, it's ultimately going to end up with what a value is. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to jump ahead. I agree. And according to desireism, what a value is, is simply that which fulfills your desire. You and I have evolved an aversion to pain. I assume that you've evolved an aversion to pain. Um, it's a safe assumption about most human beings. That's mm -hmm. just evolution has wired up your brain in such a way that if your body has uh, sent certain type of signals to your brain, there's something that you're averse to. And value is simply that positive or negative reaction to things that are that happen in the world. Um, a desire is what uh, philosophy people in the philosophy of mind call a propositional attitude. So, uh, which uh, the most non-helpful uh, way of understanding that is that it's an attitude towards a proposition. Um, a proposition is a sentence, like the cat is on the table. Um, you can have two types of attitudes towards that proposition. A belief attitude, I believe that the cat is on the table. And a desire attitude, I desire that the cat is not on the table. I, uh, mm -hmm. I have a quick question here. So what about in the case where you sure. have more than one desire, right? Using the, the cat example, right? I desire the cat is not on the table because it's a new table and I don't want the table to get scratched. Uh, but I also desire to not inflict pain and the cat just went undergone surgery. And if I, you know, push them off the table, they can get hurt, right? So in, in that scenario, you might have conflicting desires. Right. Um, before going on to that, I simply want to quickly point out that, that this gets out of value desire that the cat not be on the table. So that means the cat not being on the table has a value to me. And it's just another way of saying the same thing. Um, if you want to argue that I've introduced something here that wasn't in the statement that I desire that the cat not be on the table, I'll entertain an argument that it introduces something, but I say no. Uh, I value that the cat not being on the table is just a paraphrase of I desire that the cat is not on the table. Now, I can mm have -hmm. two conflicting desires, as you say. Desires work like forces. A desire has two components, just like a force does. The two components of a force are magnitude and direction. A force pushes or pulls in a particular direction with a particular strength. A desire pushes or pulls towards a particular proposition being true and does so with a particular strength. So in the case of these two conflicting desires, on the descriptive side, the, the strongest desire would win. So hopefully, my desire not to inflict pain on my cat is stronger than my desire that the cat not be on the table. Or at least that it's strong enough for me to go over there and gently pick the cat up and place him on the floor. So, okay. 
I, I agree with you on that level of like balancing of forces uh, kind of issue. But uh, going to the, the meta ethical uh, concern that I was raising, um, here's my concern, right? You say that uh, a value is to uh, a value is, is wanting something, right? And all you're claiming is that we evolve to want certain things and not want certain other kinds of things. Right. And this is, I think, a, a very uh, common um, counterpoint to the kind of moral. And this is why I'm really happy to have you on. It's a good kind of counterpoint to the moral realism that I raise. Right. I, I do really believe that, like, pain has a kind of to be avoidedness built into it. And I know that you think that that is sort of quite weird. Um, but the reason I guess I believe that is I, I find that there are ultimately ways to pick apart the structure that you build to to generate that objective moral framework uh, by pointing to situations where it seems like the moral obligation that you've built would fall apart, and yet uh, I believe the moral obligation would remain. So I'm going to take a slightly different tack than I used when we were talking about this online and point to uh, point. I'm going to go back to your hypothetical, basically, right? So you said a world in which we have a group of people who all uh, have an aversion to feeling their own pain and there's a reward system, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, in, in our discussions, I mostly went after prong one and I think that was a really useful debate for both of us, but I want to actually try a different thing and challenge the prong two and say, let's remove that part where there's a reward system, right? Let's just take the reward system out of the equation for a second. Is that okay? Yep. Right. It seems to me as an ethical realist that if those individuals in that world still have pain and pleasure and still have an aversion to pain and pleasure, then their pain and pleasure give me a moral obligation not to cause pain right on them, uh, even if there is no reward system. Okay. Can you explain to me how that would work causally? Ah, so I think there you're asking for a psychological explanation for a moral truth. I, I think it is morally true that I ought not to harm them, even if I lack all psychological motivation not to do so. Um, well, you can believe that, but then that moral quality that you're talking about has absolutely no ability to affect anything in the real world. Ah, I'm not saying that's how it works in the real world. I'm saying even if that were the case in a hypothetical, I still would have a moral obligation. In the real world, I'm lucky enough to be habituated to actually be moral. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is minus that reward system, it would still be wrong for me to torture someone to death. Like I said, you, you can say that, but uh, um, I, I, I would simply um, take Occam's razor and cut that wrongness out of the universe. It doesn't exist. And you can say that it's there, but you have no evidence for it. There's, there's nothing that, uh, that you can offer to point to to say that there really is such a thing. Well, what I'm pointing to is that if I ask you, do you think it's still wrong to torture someone to death, even if there's no reward or punishment system? To me, the intuitive answer is obviously yes. And so a system that says no seems like, like, like a reductio of that system. That's my evidence. Well, I, I, can, uh, I can give you a wrong answer or an answer that that's wrong. And that's because you and I are speaking here in English as beings that have a reward system and that have an aversion to pain. And by calling it wrong, um, I'm going to have to to take a bit of a detour here to, to uh, identify what the phrases right and wrong mean within desirism. Sure. The way the reward system works is that by rewarding, rewarding and punishing people, you can create new desires. So by rewarding people who return money and by condemning and punishing those people who take money, you can create an aversion to theft. For example, in our hypothetical case, it was creating an aversion to causing pain. The terms right and wrong are terms of praise and condemnation that act on the reward system. So when I say that causing pain is wrong, I'm saying something that has the capacity to act on the reward system of all listeners to help to create an aversion to causing pain to others. 
And I want people to have that aversion to causing pain to others. And since saying that it's wrong has that effect, I have a reason to say that it's wrong. I agree with all of this, by the way, as a psychological model of ethics. I just think that there's a separate question to be asked about moral truths separate from psychological truths. Mm -hmm. And right. And the, and the moral truth that uh, you're trying to get into this, some type of, 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 of metaphysical wrongness that is independent of all of this, um, I'm saying that that wrongness has no reference in the real world. Well, the reference it would have is the naturally evaluative states of our conscious beings. So to me, where value arises in a universe that might not have value otherwise is that conscious beings have pain and pleasure and the ability to flourish. And these are intrinsically valuable or intrinsically to be avoided kinds of states. And because they have them and they experience them directly, that in turn generates other value claims. And I think without that, it's hard to get off, it's hard to get values off the ground without that, I think. Um, the question there is, what are you trying to get off the ground? I can get off the ground everything that people actually do with respect to morality. That is, I can explain praise and condemnation, reward and punishment. I can explain the reasons for praising uh, people who are charitable and honest and for condemning people who are dishonest or who take property without consent. Um, I can handle... But, um, but only within a framework where there's a value reward system, right? Yeah. So if they're if they're outside of a value reward system, you have no, you, you would you would say that they don't have a moral obligation to listen to you. Actually, in that case, I would say the whole idea of a moral obligation doesn't make sense. Okay, so I think this is a point where we just fundamentally disagree because I think you know Hitler had a moral obligation not to kill the Jews, even if he was in a system where there were no even if, or like let me let me put a, let me use another example. Right, someone who. Uh, for some reason, doesn't have any aversion to their own pain, right? Someone who does violate your first principle and thereby is deprived of the reward system that you, I think, would say is the main piece of number two. Um, that individual still shouldn't torture and kill people. It's still wrong for them to do so, even if we're never going to be able to explain to them why. We're just going to have to lock them up. Right. Um on my account, we built the institution of morality because we have a reward system. Um, if we if we were creatures that didn't have a reward system, we would have never even have invented the concept of morality. Sure, but it's also something we evolved because we're biological, but we've, we've grown beyond both of those facts, I think. The fact that we evolved proto-evolutionary feature or proto-ethical features, and then we developed rudimentary ethical theories as beginning cultural beings that we've now moved, it seems like, into a more advanced ethical stage, potentially, I guess. Uh, Maybe we're regressing, I don't know, right? But I guess that's sort of, I'm wondering why, it seems like what you're, the argument you're making is the same argument that someone would make if they wanted to say, you know, we evolved ethics a certain kind of way, and so we should look to evolution. I know you don't believe that, so... Uh, well, I would. Uh, I believe that there's a uh, overly simplistic way of doing that. Uh -huh. To get okay, uh, before going off on my rant against evolution, very uh -huh. theories of morality. Um, if there were a planet with a species that evolves without a reward system, and I think we have to agree that that's contingently possible. Um, and there were two species on that particular planet, then the only way that they would have for controlling each other's behavior is direct incentives and deterrence. That is, if you harm us, we'll harm you more. Or if you don't harm us, we'll, we'll pay you, reward you somehow. And they would only have a system of law. They wouldn't have a system of morality, no matter how far they evolved. Wouldn't that just be another reward system, though, what you're it describing? It almost sounds like, like maybe consequentialism? Um, yeah, consequentialism uh, relies heavily on that, on that type okay. of system, yeah. But it is the, I mean, that's the type of 
reward and punishment that we work into our legal system. We say that something is illegal and we will punish you as a deterrence, but the law doesn't work or, uh, on the reward system in order to create new desires and aversion. That's where law and morality are distinct. Morality works on the reward system to create new desires and aversions, and the law works by creating punishments and rewards that work on the desires that already exist. Hmm. Create new ones that simply works on the ones that are already there. So I have, I have a, I have a I question I can understand that. to maybe try to dig into this. So um, it's my rudimentary understanding that one of the things that morality provides is a counter to um, what our sort of animal brain may want to do. So if I were to use the example of... Uh, you know, it made a lot of sense in, you know, prehistory for us to be in a tribe and to kill other people in a different tribe just to protect um, our own, right? You know, so killing had a, a moral imperative just in terms of survival. You know, we've obviously grown past right. that where, you know, I don't, if someone, um, you know, does something horrible to me, like, I don't know, they, they kill my mother, right? Someone murders my mother. Um, I may mm -hmm. have a very strong desire to want to cause harm to that person, um, but it would still be morally wrong in our current sort of society to do so. And so right. in a way, um, morality almost is a, um, uh, like a corrective or a balance to those sort of animal base instincts, right? Or am I wrong? Uh that's part of it. It's, and it's an important part of it. But um, which of these animal-based instincts need correction and which don't? I mean, another one of our um, animal-based instincts is maternal affection towards their young. That's obviously not something we want to correct. That's something we want to augment. I mean, I think we should correct it. We should just start killing babies off. I think that's fine. No problem. <laughs> we should. If uh, Aaron had his way, we'd be eating them. Mm, tender. <laughs> Taste of chicken. Yeah. Possible view. Uh, this ties in with my rant on evolution, um, which we put off a little while ago. Mm -hmm. Is um, there are there is a branch, a group of people who think that uh, morality is an evolved sentiment towards or against certain types of actions, such as a mother's affection for their young. We evolved to have or. Humans evolved to have sentiments such as that, and morality can be um, understood as these evolved sentiments. Now, as you mentioned, with respect to tribes, not all of our evolved sentiments are good. Some of our evolved sentiments we discovered, that's really not helping. I mean, it may have helped the small tribe, the tribe of 100 to 150 individuals in Africa uh, 70,000 years ago. But in our world, it does far more harm than good, which means we want to either suppress or overpower those basic desires. And that's what morality allows us to do, just as you explained. Morality allows us to use the praise and condemnation of certain of actions that go against that basic desire in order to create new desires that then counter it, that outweigh it, that tap it down so that it's not causing all of these problems. So let me, let me ask real quick, uh, right? If, if we evolved to have certain desires that are beneficial, like taking care of our, our offspring, but there are other desires that we have evolved that are not good. It, like by not good, do you mean morally wrong? Uh, by not good, I mean, they tend to thwart other desires. These uh, tribal desires that we've had, I mean, we can blame everything from the Crusades to Holocaust to the genocide of the Native Americans to slavery, racism, all sorts of harms on these tribal instincts. And mm -hmm. so remember, a bad desire is a desire that tends to thwart other desires. And these tribal desires, these feelings of special kinship to members of our tribe, tend to do thwart an awful lot of other desires. In fact, they could wipe out the human race at this point. So we have reason to view those as bad and to tamp them down and, or to counter them using these systems of reward and punishment. Can you, um, for a second, just give me a 
a little bit on why desireism would say it'd be bad to get rid of the human race? Um, if there's nothing that's intrinsically value, why is a world without us worse than a world with us? Well, I can't say that it's intrin- intrinsically worse. Okay. But the, the question, the, uh, the question as far as whether it's good or bad is whether we have reason to get rid of the human race. Remember, pain is bad because we have a reason to get rid of pain. And we have a reason to get rid of pain because we have an aversion to pain. Um, <laughs> to me, that just sounds like a restatement of pain is intrinsically bad. And that's why we ought to have an aversion to it just with, with those things implied rather than stated outright. Uh, if you want to define your terms that way, there's, there's no limit to how terms can be defined. But, uh, but anyway, the question about exterminating the human race is would, do we have reasons to, or not exterminate, but to seek out the um, um, extinction of the human race? All things considered, I think that the human race continuing um, would, is something that we have more reason to, br- to bring about than to end. But again, it's not because there's an, it's intrinsically good or bad that the human race exists. Do I personally have, like, envi- like climate change, for example, do I personally have any reason on your view, if I'm going to be dead before it gets bad, to care about it right now? Okay. Um, there's two ways that I can actually understand your question. I can take you literally as to what you, with, uh, take your words literally, do you have a reason? And that depends on do you have desires that would be thwarted if future generations suffered because of climate change? And I would have to do a psychological analysis. I think I would find desires that would be thwarted. That is, I bet that you have relatives with kids and you care about their welfare and their future. Um, and a, a general um, sense of follow feeling, I think those tended to be fairly widespread, and I would think that you probably have them as well. But it's quite possible that you don't. As, as a descriptive fact, you may have no desire that is fulfilled by um, eliminating climate change. But then there's the second question, the moral question, should you have a desire that would be thwarted? Yeah, how do you, how do you get to that should? Right. And in, uh, in desirism, that's the question of whether other people have reasons to praise those who have such a desire and condemn those who don't. And all of those people out there who have kids and grandkids and care about their welfare or they care about their welfare of other people's kids and grandkids, all of those people have reasons to praise those people who are concerned about climate change and condemn those people who aren't. Whether they realize it or not, they have reasons to do so. Hold on. I think you lost me on the inference there, though. If other people have reasons to praise and blame me to try to get me to do climate change, then how does it? Yeah. To do climate change. Or to, to avoid climate change. But right, right. But how does that uh, translate into me necessarily having reasons? Because I could just ignore their praise and blame, right? Okay. I said you should have a reason, but it's not the case that you do have a reason. Well, why should I, though? What's wrong with me just ignoring their praise and blame? Um, well, actually, when I say that you should, I'm saying that people generally have reasons to cause you to have um uh, such a desire that that's all I need for the should that I'm aiming for. So is it more based okay. on a sort of democratic system, like whatever the majority desire is, or, you know, whatever one has the most magnitude, I think is, is the word you used before. Um, no, because the majority can be wrong. You can have a reason and not know it. Uh, you can think that you have a reason and, uh, and be wrong. So, for example, some people might think that we have a reason to condemn homosexuality because if we don't, God will send hurricanes against us and we have reasons to avoid hurricanes. So we have reasons to avoid homosexuality. People might believe that and they're wrong. So what they believe about what they have reasons to do and what they actually have reasons to do can diverge. What what system evaluates the wrongness or rightness of any one claim? If, if, uh, you know, I, I could be misunderstanding you, which is totally a possibility. Uh, but if you said before that it is the desires of people 
that define the goodness or the badness of any one thing. And it is partially about the magnitude uh, um, of those in terms of their direction and weight. Then how is it not purely a democratic thing, right? If an entire country like Saudi Arabia, for example, thinks that, you know, all women should be wearing burqas or something, I don't know, something terrible, right? There, you know, right, we can look at that as like an with an objective morality sort of perspective and go, yes, that is objectively morally wrong. But with this desirism, it almost sounds like it it would be morally right within that context. Um, it depends. Uh, depends on on what people actually have a, a reason to do, uh, and not what they think they have a reason to do. So I'm. Um, let me parse that distinction out a bit. Uh, when I was young, 13 years old, I put my hand on a hot plate. I just thought it was a regular plate sitting there. It turns out that somebody had been welding on that metal plate a short while ago. I didn't know terrible. about it. Oh. And I got second <laughs> degree burns on my free. hand. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, that hurt. I had a reason not to put my hand on that plate. Now, no voting is uh, would would that fact i had a reason not to put my hand on that plate i didn't know it no nobody else in the room know it i could have asked anybody in the room the guy who did the welding had taken the pieces that he welded out of the room um, there was a fact of the matter i had a reason not to put my hand on that plate um with respect to let's go back to my original case the people who have an aversion to pain they have a reason to cause everybody to have an aversion to causing pain to others. They may not know it. They may not know about the reward system. They may not know how it works. Um, they may not know that by praising and condemning those who cause pain to others, they could create these aversions. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they believe. They have a reason. They might even believe that there's a God that will punish them if they promote this aversion to causing pain to others and be willing to vote 100 to 1 or 100 to 0 against promoting this aversion. But still, the fact of the matter is they have a reason to promote this aversion, and it doesn't depend on the votes. It depends on what desires will actually fulfill or thwart other desires, not on what people believe. So I, I, my feeling is... Um you and I, I think, are just ultimately going to go round and round on the, the disagreement on... on I, you certainly are saying you're objective in the way that, uh, uh, in an applied sense, I would say that I'm objective, where we think that people can be wrong about their ethical beliefs or their moral beliefs sometimes based on misunderstandings about what is good for them. Um, but I, obviously, I think that that means that you have to get the other kind of objectivity that you seem... To be resisting, I, maybe I could try to rephrase this concern a little bit differently. Um, this is a kind of objection that gets raised against a lot of ethical theories, but I'm wondering how you would address it here. Um, I feel like you often keep coming back to the uh, this is the kind of thing that would tend to uh, uh, not promote other desires or would lead to a lack of harmonious desires. I worry that that might be a a sort of a way as a catch-all to um, use this theory to describe things that you like versus things that you don't like. Have there been cases where, because of this theory, you've had a substantial sort of change in your perspective on one ethical thing or another that could sort of explain how this isn't just uh, what is what promotes the best desires just happens to turn out to be the things that you like? You know what I mean? Right. Well, I can't deny that people are subject to these types of biases, that they exist. I'm a human being and I exist for me as well. Um, now, there's still the question of whether or not the theory um, sanctions any of that. And I think I can make a case that the, that the theory doesn't sanction it. And the fact that a person makes a mistake doesn't mean that the theory is wrong. And that's that's the same with with logic. The fact that somebody can make a mistake when they uh, like balance their checkbook or do a logical proof doesn't prove that the system of math or the system of logic is flawed. 
certainly not. My my concern was more uh, are the pronouncements of this system ending up sort of identical to whatever is the personal preferences of the person promoting the system. And it's something that we all have to, I think, struggle with whenever we're doing philosophy. Um, I was just wondering if you feel like there are any particular checks in place within this system for correcting for those kind of biases. Um, no system for correcting for biases, except the system for correcting for biases generally. Uh-huh. Um, it, um, when, with the system, you have like science. Science doesn't correct for biases. Um, science works around the biases. Mm-hmm. It's well known in science that if the, the scientist is ob- observing his own experiment, he's likely to record numbers that will get the, re- the results that he wants to get anyway. So scientists invent systems like double-blind experiments, um, not because, because they know that they're not going to be able to get rid of the bias. Yeah. The only thing to do is to design an experiment where the bias isn't going to affect the results. That's well put. That's a good way to put it. And, and some of that's going to have to be required in, in ethics as well. The question, there is a fact of the matter as to whether or not a desire will tend to fulfill or thwart other desires. And people are going to be sorely tempted to come up with all sorts of excuses for thinking that their favorite political philosophy is going to um, pass the test. Um, but the, you know, the thing is, to, just to do the, the same types of things you would do in to try to figure out what the fact of the matter is. Um, now you asked mm-hmm. this, if in applying this theory, I came up with us um, answers I didn't like. Um, and effectively, that's one of the ways to, to address that is, did I discover that I have desires that aren't good? Mm-hmm. And say, hey, it's, it's okay that I do this because I like doing this. And now I can finagle the system to say that this is a good desire because it produces all sorts of good effects, fulfilling all of those other desires. Um, as a human being, I have to say that, that that it probably happens a lot, but I have come up with desires I don't like, such as I play computer games. Mm-hmm. And I feel terribly guilty about it. Because it's a waste of time, you mean? Because it's a waste of time. I mean, we all play video <laughs> games here. I don't mean that personally. I'm just... <laughs> I'm not helping anybody. I'm not advancing my... Uh, Good to get some youth <laughs> Trying to benefit the world. I'm just sitting here on my computer uh, manipulating electrons to no good end whatsoever. And my theory says, really, if I didn't have that desire, if I liked... Uh, if, if I had an aversion to that and I was spending more time on, on my philosophy or doing research or, or even working at McDonald's and donating the money to Africa, um, that would be a better use of my time. But every day I spend a few minutes on my computer playing games. A few minutes, that's it. You shouldn't feel any guilt. Okay. Come- I'm, t- I'm, I'm tempted to find out what games you play, but I think we need to move on to Hero of the Week, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so we, we won't waste time on video games. It's Thank never a waste much. of time. Um, do, you have any, do you have any final uh, sort of thoughts before on this before we move into our Hero of the Week? Well, the one computer game I play most is Lord of the Rings Online. All right. Fair enough. Is that what you think you are? A hero? Saved the world, didn't I? Once. Talk to me after you've done it a couple more times. Uh, so our hero of the week, um, we which is going to be, a, I think, a contentious one, but in a good way, uh, is going to be <laughs> Senator, the late Senator John McCain. Um, and yeah, I, I have good and bad things to say about him. I think Aaron mostly has bad things to say about him. Uh, I don't know where you <laughs> land on the good or badness of him. Um, I'm going to say good and bad as well. Although what he did recently with respect to his funeral, I have lots of praise for. As do I. You mean for trolling Donald yeah. Trump? Uh, yeah, but uh, effectively, this, this ties in, in with desirism. He used his funeral to promote a set of values that I think are have been sorely diminished as of late. Yeah, sorely diminished by a certain John McCain. <laughs> We we agreed to do this as the Hero of the Week, Alonzo suggested it, and I, I think it's fine as a suggestion, though I'm here to present the minority report that I, I think it is right that 
every time someone says something good about John McCain, there should be someone else there to point out, hey, this is the guy who sung comically about bombing Iran or something, because I, I get worried about the whitewashing. And I think that uh, I get worried about how this might reinforce problematic kinds of behavior. And you and I are both concerned about that. So, yeah. And I think that, you know, you could make a fairly simple argument um, that McCain was a big part of this new wave of uh, the right wing uh, that brought us Trump, right, with him bringing on mm-hmm. uh, Palin, right? You know, you could really point to that as, as a turning point in our history. But I still think that there are things that he did um, where he could have followed in line with the Republicans and he didn't. Uh, and I think you can point to, I think, things about his character specifically during that town hall when that woman was trying to say that he was in, that Obama was an Arab and all these things. And, and McCain cut her off and took the microphone out of her hand. And, you know, I think along, along the lines of things we've said before in this podcast about, you know, people are flawed and, and they're, you know, any one person can make good and bad decisions. You know, I disagree with McCain on a lot of policy things, uh, but I think uh, there's a lot of things he did that is very respectful. Yeah, I'll agree with uh, with the view on Palin. It's selecting Palin was extremely irresponsible for him to do. Um, but uh, it is, I, I think that he recognizes recognized ultimately that that he he sold out his own values when he did that. Yeah, I think that he gets a completely fake story politically. I think that the reality is he was never a maverick. He was only strategically a maverick during the times when it would advantage him politically. And I'm not, you know, like he's a politician. They're all politicians, whatever. I don't want us to think that he was special in his maverickiness or something. He didn't do anything incredible as a result of it. He just claimed it a bunch and that and then went on harming a bunch of people. And I think uh, his legacy is is ultimately more harm than good. And I think that we should be honest about that, even if we want to praise the things, you know, we want to reinforce people who late in life attempt to try to correct their ways to some extent. That doesn't mean that we are, are shouted down or unpatroned because we talk about also the things that they might have done wrong a lot repeatedly. And yeah. And, well, Our, go, desirism go says that it's important to specify what it is that you're praising. So um, yeah, it, it, it's important with particularly somebody like McCain that you specify my praise is not for these things that I think Ought not never to have happened that nobody ought to have done. McCain did it. And for that, no, don't think my praise is going over there. It's going over here for something that he did that reflects the types of things that I think other people should be doing, that some people, that other people should be valuing. And I think like, you know, one of the things we talked about a while ago of virtuous, virtue signaling, I don't know if there's a word for like, if someone else does something good and you want to point it out. Like, I think that there are some things he did that are worth praising simply because it's easy for me to sit down with a bunch of other liberals and talk about how terrible Trump is, right? No, no, there's no progress being made by us sitting around making fun of Trump, right? Um, right. I think there, there is something that could be sort of said or pushed forward about praising someone that not many people would praise, right? Like, you know, a while ago, I took the position of an argument, a good argument I thought Jordan Peterson was making, which uh, I got reamed for, which was totally fine. Um, uh, and even Aaron was like, really, you want to praise him? And I was like, it's just as one. Or I thought it was a very good and valid argument. Right. And I think that it's OK to find ways to do the opposite of what our current discourse is. Our current discourse is let's dump on everyone uh, if someone does something slightest, like let's boycott in and out because they did one small thing I don't like, even though I'm going to ignore all the other good things they've done. Uh, and let's all jump on that bandwagon. And if someone possibly says something out of line, let's dump on that person, too. So I think like, yes, there are tons of things we could say about John McCain, uh, but most of those things are going to fall on deaf ears because who on this podcast is going to really disagree with with any of that? So you'd be surprised. 
I got some Possibly. angry messages. Um, <laughs> I, you know, this is this is my own perspective, but I think uh, McCain uh, isn't getting uh, the critical eye that he deserves because he represents the kind of mediocrity that is systemic within our politics. Not as a war hero, I have nothing but the highest respect for his ability to deal with a horrible situation there. But when he came back and he sort of jumped on to a, a problematic set of politics and then followed it in a not mavericky, in my opinion, kind of mediocre kind of way, he opens a door eventually for Donald Trump for, with people like Sarah Palin and with his not giving a strong enough response. Yes, he he rebuked that one woman, woman in that one thing. He also let his uh, his vice president you know, mess around with birtherism for a while. Like, that's a huge problem. And and so I think that we have to admit that part of the reason we don't like to hear John McCain criticized is because his his middle of the road, get along mentality is something that uh, we all might feel identifying with or might now want to claim ourselves as part of the new move for everyone to be the new centrists. Because everyone, a centrist is now apparently the reasonable position. Anyone who's not a centrist is uh, is extreme in some way or another. Sure. And, and I just want to rebuke your one premise that mm -hmm. no one is saying he's a terrible person. I've been reading a ton of articles that are all saying nothing but how terrible he is. Oh, I didn't so say I no one was saying he's a terrible person. I meant I'm not saying with regard to his vet, vet, vet experiences that he is inferior in that kind of way. Sorry. Oh, no, I thought I'm sorry. Maybe I misheard. I thought you were saying that no one is really talking about the terrible things he's done. Oh, no, I didn't mean that no one is. I mean that there oh. are some people who aren't who are unable to talk about it at all. I see. I see. And like, I don't think that everyone has to dunk on him all the time. But I think that it's valuable for every individual to be honest with themselves about both sides of this coin, rather than having to have some individuals who are extreme in one direction and then other individuals who feel pushed to the extreme in the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, th I think you're right on that. Uh, after Bush defeated McCain in 2000, I think McCain made a uh, embraced the evangelical right in order to try to get support for his next campaign, and there is nothing praiseworthy in that. Absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah, and at that funeral where he trolled Donald Trump, he also had George Bush become more humanized by being up there and giving a eulogy and I'm, I'm just like I, I get a little frustrated that, that it's so easy for people to humanize and forgive these people who I think did something did very very many wrong things and harmed a great many people um, yeah and, and I think like uh, actually I don't want to say it okay. I was gonna I was gonna say something but then I realized I don't know it for a fact so okay. I will I will hold back that's praiseworthy yeah <laughs> We, we didn't get to talk about epistemic um, restraint and humility, but we, we do preach that quite often on the show. I think that's another point of agreement between us. Yeah, that's one of the, the un, strongly underappreciated, strongly underappreciated vices is epistemic negligence, just recklessly throwing ideas out there um, without taking care as to whether or not they're true or false, as certain presidents have tended to do. All right. Well, I think we're about out of time. Um, Alonzo, do you want to um, plug for individuals where they can find you uh, and your materials? Okay. You mentioned the Desirism Facebook group, which uh, I'm heavily involved in. Mm -hmm. I also have two blogs, one of which I use where I put pretty much my daily thoughts as I do my research, and that's atheistethicist.blogspot.com. And I also have a blog or a site called Desirism, where I put my papers, longer papers, as I write them. Oh, great. And we'll, we'll put That's all awesome. that stuff in the show notes, of course. Okay. All right. Uh, well, Alonzo, thank you so much for coming on and talking about... Uh, this was great for me. I love getting to dive into meta-ethics. They don't let me do this very often, so uh, I appreciate it. Um, it was pleasurable. Thank you. Yeah, I hope it's fulfilled some of your desires. As if I'm just sitting here going, no, you cannot. GW makes me talk about art all the time. Oh, my God. It's oh, so you hard. Loved it. You loved it so much. <laughs> it was a good episode. But this was wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. And um, I, we, I will look forward to getting added by all of the people in your desires and group about this. 
Okay. <laughs> awesome. Have a good one. You too. We would like to thank our new patron, Timothy Redacted. We would like to thank our top patrons, Jesse Rubinowitz and Brenna Goodman, Dave Maslick, Abe, Corey Johnston, host of the Brainstorm podcast and the Hardcore Skeptic, CampQuest.org, 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 Mr. Nobody, and Scott John Harrison at Shaded Sprider. If you would like to become a patron, find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. As always, remember, you are the void and the void is you.